Well, this morning, guys, we're going we're gonna to double dip. We're going to do two different passages. We're going to do Revelation chapter 10, which is a shorter chapter. And then we're going to do um, Daniel chapter 9, which is one of the most fascinating passages, I feel like, in, in Scripture. And so you have a chart in front of you. We're going to unpack that chart. You actually got it last week because my admin got confused and gave it to you early. So now you have two charts. Um, but we're going to go through that in just a second. But by way of review, I want to just look at last week. Uh, we looked at the first two of the three woes. Now, remember, we're in the second half of the tribulation. The tribulation is seven years long. So we're in the second three and a half years, which is called the great tribulation. And we, we are looking at the seven trumpet judgments. We've covered five or six so we have one more to go, all right? And we'll talk about that this morning. But last week we saw two of those last woes, the last three trumpet judgments. Stick with me here. And the first one was Satan is given the key to the abyss and he's released. He, not he's released, but he releases demons and those demons attack the earth. And so what we saw is that they're able to torment unbelievers on the earth for a period of five months. Why five months? We're not really sure. But it's long enough to make them wish they'd never been born. So we see now God unleashing on the earth the, this, this uh, judgment that's taking a much more radical form than just famines and plagues. This is actually demonic torture. Then we saw the four angels who have been bound. The word tells us that they were in chains and they're released. So these are not good angels. These are demonic angels. These are fallen angels. And what do they bring? Well, they bring 200 million demons, not soldiers, not Chinese, not Russians. These are, these are so soldiers from the pit of hell, basically. And they kill one third of the earth's population. Again, unbelievers, because the 144,000 Jews and those who are redeemed because of their evangelistic efforts are protected by God, much like the Jews were protected in Egypt during the plagues. So one third of the unbelievers are killed. And then those who remain, the unbelievers who remain, refuse to repent. Now, this does not mean, I don't believe, that they will not or could not future repent because the evangelists are still evangelizing. And those who have come to faith in Christ are still sharing the gospel. It just means at that point in time, in spite of five months of demon activity and one-third of the earth's population being put to death by demons, they still refuse to repent. So you see, again, the stubbornness of man. So we've seen two of those last three woes, and now there's one more woe, the seventh trumpet, that we're going to need to look at. But... What we have in chapter 10 is another one of those kind of parentheses or pauses in the action where there's something else that's going to happen. And what I want to do is kind of take advantage of that. It's a shorter chapter and we'll get to it, but I want to kind of backtrack and look at another passage that I feel like is important for us to understand this book. And it's Daniel chapter nine. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that this morning and to set it up. I want to look at chapter 10 of Revelation, because here's what it says. It says in verse 6, the second half of verse 6, it says, there will be no more delay. So we'll look at this in detail in a second, but there's a point coming in the tribulation when the delay is over. Now, you may think, well, where's the delay? 
I mean, half the population of the earth is dead. There's demons everywhere. There's all kinds of torture going on and famine going on. There's doesn't sound like much of a delay. Well, the delay is the end has not yet come. And now we're seeing in chapter 10, it's coming. It's right around the corner. We are basically compressing into the very end of the seven years. So as these woes unpack, we have more action in a shorter period of time, but the end is right around the corner is basically what we're seeing here. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, so the last of the three woes, the last of the trumpets is going to be sounded. Everything's coming to an end. It says the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants. So no more delay. We're coming to a close and we're going to see this mystery of God fulfilled. Now that word is really important to what we're studying because there's no doubt about the fact that this book is incredibly mysterious. It's incredibly hard to understand. And there is a lot of difference of opinion over what the book of Revelation means, says. There are those who don't even think it should be in the Bible um, and never read it and don't want anything to do with it. There are those who read it and see it differently than the way I'm teaching it. I get it. I understand it. I'm teaching a particular view, and it's one that our church and many other churches hold. But it's a, it's a mysterious book. But what we see in the book of Revelation is fulfillment of prophecy. It's, it's yet future. In other words, it hadn't happened yet, but it's fulfillment. We're getting a vision of things that have yet to happen, but they're all in fulfillment of what the prophets, the Old Testament prophets said. So everything John is describing to you and I, and one of the things that we got to be real careful of is that we, we talk as if it's happening right now because he's describing it as it's happening, as if it's happening right now, but it's future. It's, it's really not that distant future. We're closer to it than we've ever been, but it's still not happened yet. But John is seeing something that's been predicted thousands of years before by God through his prophets, and it's in the Old Testament. So you see in Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah, you see these prophecies concerning the end. And what's pretty clear is that these guys who prophesied who wrote what God told him to write, didn't always understand the full implications of what they were saying in writing. They were told by God to put these things in writing, and they did. Some of what they wrote had short-term fulfillment. Some has yet to be fulfilled. And that's particularly what we're going to see this morning. So this idea of mystery was all throughout the Old Testament. They didn't always understand what they were writing. They didn't always understand the full implication. So it still remained a mystery to the prophets all throughout their lifetimes. And all the way through the Old Testament, it remained a mystery to those who read the prophets. They didn't always get it and didn't understand it. So this idea of mystery is in the Old Testament and it's talked about in the New Testament, particularly by Paul. The word in the Greek is a hidden or secret thing, something that God knows that we don't yet know. It's, it's a, a secret held by God that he has not yet revealed. What we see in the New Testament is God begins to reveal much of the mystery to his people through Paul and others. It refers to the secrets of God. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that God has secrets, right? God knows things you don't know. 
And yes, we have the Bible and it is the word of God, but the, even within the Bible, there are aspects of the word of God that we don't always understand and that are not always clear. That's why we continue to study the Bible, to understand it better and to grow in our knowledge of what God's trying to tell us. His counsels and purposes, which are not known to man apart from his special revelation in scripture. Now, I don't believe there's new revelation out there. I don't believe anybody's getting new words from God. What we know, we know from this book. But it does mean that we need to continue to study this book so that we might understand this book better. And so we have in the New Testament, Paul and others writing and describing mysteries that the prophets long to know. Here's an example. Bible.org says this, the Old Testament revealed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation of the Gentiles. There are prophecies after prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53 is a perfect example. It describes how he's going to die. It describes them bartering over his clothes. It describes every aspect of his death. And yet Jesus comes along and most of the Religious leaders rejected him because they didn't understand those aspects of his suffering and dying. They saw the Messiah as a conquering king. There was no mention of the church and certain aspects of the church age in the prophetic writings. They didn't understand the church. They didn't understand Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and they didn't understand the church. They had no concept of us. The Old Testament prophets didn't understand Gentiles and Jews living together in harmony within a local fellowship called the, the body of Christ or the church. Didn't understand it. Didn't even cross their minds. It was a mystery. They prophesied about it. They predicted it, but they didn't understand it. Now we do. How? Retrospect. We look back. We have, again, the writings of Paul and others who tell us these mysteries have now been fulfilled. But to the prophets, it was a mystery. See here, Peter says, this salvation, salvation to Jew and Gentile, we're all in the family of God together, was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation. They knew that something was going to happen, but they didn't fully understand it. He says, they wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. They wanted to know, but they couldn't understand it. They even rejected the idea of his suffering. They didn't understand his suffering. Again, when Jesus came, how did the people react to him saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and rise again? His own disciples said, it isn't going to happen. God forbid it, Peter said. That can't happen. That doesn't fit our paradigm. That's not how this thing works. It was a mystery to the prophets, and it was even a mystery to the disciples of Christ up until when? Really, Pentecost. They didn't get it, didn't understand it. Jesus Christ says, I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. They long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. See, to them, the Old Testament prophets, it remained a mystery. And the truth is, it remains a mystery to many people today. So what you have is the prophets were constantly reading their own writings. So you had 
Daniel reading the writings of Jeremiah. These prophets would read each other's writings, trying to understand and grasp what was going to happen, near-term and long-term. What's God doing? How's God working? So we have in Daniel chapter 9 a case of Daniel, who's a prophet, who's living in exile as a Jew in Babylon, is reading the writings of Jeremiah, a prophet who's living in Jerusalem. So you've got this exchange of information between these prophets. So Daniel 9, verse 2, listen to what it says. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So keep that number in mind, 70 years. What's the context? Daniel is a Jew. Daniel was taken captive when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, broke down the walls, took the majority of the wealthy people, the influential people captive back to Babylon. Daniel was one of those as a young man. It's now 68 or 69 years later, he's probably in his late 80s. He's reading the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and he notices something. It's almost been 70 years. What did Jeremiah prophesy? After 70 years of captivity, you're going to go back to Jerusalem. So Daniel, who's been there almost 70 years, is thinking, it's time. It's time to go back. It's almost here. So he begins to pray, Lord, forgive us for our sins. Lord, restore us back, send us back to the land. Now he's not going to get to go because he's too old, but he at least wants someone to get to go back to the land to restore Jerusalem and the temple and the city. So he begins to pray. And before he finishes his prayer, he's going to get a visit from Gabriel, the angel, and Gabriel's going to give him a message. He's reading more than likely chapter 29 of Jeremiah. And so he's reading prophecy, doesn't fully understand what it's saying, but he does understand that it's 70 years and it, we've almost filled that time up. It's time to go back. Here's what Jeremiah says in chapter 29. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed to Babylon, for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. What place? Jerusalem, the land of Judah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What is he reading? He's reading Jeremiah, making this statement about after 70 years of captivity, you're going to go home. And he's ecstatic. He can't wait. And he's praying, Lord, send us home. Make it happen. Let it be true. What's the time frame he's thinking about? 70 years, and it's about a year away from it taking place. So he's reading and understanding a period of 70 years. And that's important. Because he's, he's thinking this prophecy is about to be fulfilled. But look at what it says. Look carefully at what it says. God says, I'm going to give you a future and a hope. Here's what we know. Even when they got back to the land, things didn't go well. 
It's going to take them 49 years, roughly 49, 50 years to rebuild the temple, the walls, and begin to repopulate the city. They would still have no king. They would still have no army. And to this day, they have no king. And yet it says, I'm going to restore what? Your future and your hope. It says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Did they ever, from that point forward, ever seek God with all their heart? No. To this day, they don't seek God with all their heart, they being the Jews. And then he says, you'll be found by me. I will restore your fortunes. I'll gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. Has that happened? No, it's not happened. There are Jews living all over this planet. They don't all live in Israel. So there's aspects of this promise that is that are not going to be fulfilled even though they go back to the land. So Daniel's thinking short-term, but Jeremiah, whether he knows it or not, is prophesying long-term, long-term fulfillments. Because even though a remnant returned to the land under Nehemiah and began to rebuild, it was not complete. It didn't restore the fortunes of Israel. They still were a weakened nation. They would eventually fall to the Romans again, and that was the case when Jesus showed up. And that's why they wanted him to overthrow the Romans, but it didn't happen because that's not why he came. So let's skip forward into what the angel says to Daniel after having read and prayed about the prophecy of Jeremiah. Here's what he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. Now this is Gabriel sent from God, messenger of God with a word to Daniel after having read from Jeremiah. So he's like getting extra credit. He's getting more information. He says, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. There's a lot packed in there, but this is more information than Daniel got out of just reading Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, 70 weeks are decreed. Now that's different obviously than 70 years. Remember what was the number that Daniel's thinking about? 70 years, after 70 years we go back, it's almost a year away, it's almost time. And then the angel starts talking about 70 weeks. You got to think Daniel's going, okay, wait a minute. What, what happened to the 70 years? I, I, all I'm interested in is the 70 years. But no, no, Gabriel's talking about something different, 70 weeks. And he says, in that time period, whatever it is, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to finish transgression. I'm going to get rid of rebellion among your people. I'm going to put an end to sin. I'm going to atone for, completely take care of all iniquity. It'll be gone. He says, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness, complete, everlasting, forever righteousness on this planet among, among the people. And I'm going to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, every prophet who's ever spoken, every vision that's ever been had will be fulfilled. And I'm going to anoint a most holy place. Has any of this happened? No. Had it happened when Daniel heard this from Gabriel? No. It's prophetic. It's talking about the future. Did it happen when they went back to the land? No. They didn't have everlasting righteousness. Their iniquity wasn't atoned for. There was, there was plenty of transgression in Israel after they got back. So this is all talking about a time that is yet to come and it's supposedly gonna happen after 70 weeks. 
what's, what's Gabriel talking about? And here's the important part. Who's it a promise to? He tells Daniel, it's for your people and your holy city. Who are Daniel's people? Israel, the Jews. What city? Jerusalem. This is not talking about the church, guys. This is talking about Israel. It's a promise made about Israel from Gabriel, and it came directly from God to Daniel. So what do we do with 70 weeks? Here's the literal translation in the Hebrew, and you got to track with this. If your head has been on the point of exploding over the last 10 weeks, it will explode this morning, okay? But just track with me as best you can. It literally means 77s, not weeks. It gets translated weeks because that's a typical use of the term, but in this context, it's not talking about weeks, it's talking about 77s or 70 years. Because what is Daniel thinking about? 70 years. So here comes Gabriel sent by God with an elaboration that's going to expand his thoughts, expand beyond 70 years to 77s. Now what's 70 times seven? It's 490. Okay, so suddenly we're now talking about a much longer period of time. Daniel's thinking 70. He's at the end of like the 69th year and he's thinking it's just a year away. We get to go home. It's gonna be great. We're going back to the land. And Gabriel says, you know what? That's great, but I got something even bigger planned for Israel. Bigger than going back to the land because that's not going to cut it. That's not gonna be enough. So he's expanding Daniel's thought process. And he says, know therefore and understand that from, so he's going to give us some, some end dates to this 490 years. He says, from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Now, who might that be? Well, the whole idea of him being an anointed one is by almost every scholar that I've read and know about, it's Christ. It's the coming of the Messiah. So we got an end date to the coming of the Messiah, and we have a start date from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And in this chart that I gave you, and we're going to go over it in a minute, we'll give you those dates. But there are dates here, and people a lot smarter than me have done the math and, and studied it and wrestled with it. And it basically tells us that there's a point in time very near when Nebuchadnezzar the king is going to send back a portion of Israel to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the city, the wall, and the temple. That's the beginning date of the 490 years. The end date is the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so that's what Gabriel is talking about. Again, it's not what Daniel had in mind, but God's trying to reveal to him something even greater. He says there's going to be seven weeks. So once this thing starts, this 409-year period of time, there's going to be a seven-week period that's talking about 49 years. 49 years is how long it took them to rebuild Jerusalem. The walls, the gates, the temple, the city. So once they went back, it took 49 years for them to rebuild. So he gives us that time frame. Then for 62 more weeks or years... It says, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. It's going to take 
much longer to really rebuild the city to any remote likeness of what it once used to look like. And there's a reference here to the fact that it's going to be destroyed again. When was it destroyed again? It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, by Titus. So in a way, you've got Daniel putting all his hope and his, his trust in the rebuilding of the city, going back to the city and God saying, that's not enough. It's going to even be destroyed again. You're missing the point, Daniel. I've got something greater in store than that city in its earthly form. Expand your horizons. Think bigger. But he gives us a beginning date, the decree by Nebuchadnezzar, and an end date, the coming of the anointed one. And it's going to be 490 years. But wait a minute. If you do the math here, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks adds up to 483 years. I'm not a mathematician, guys, but even I can do that calculation. Where are the seven years that are missing? See, that's only 483 years, but Gabriel told him 490, 77s. Where's the missing week? What's going on here? He says that after the 62 weeks, and you got to add in the other seven, he says, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, who's the anointed one? It's Christ. So not only will Christ come after 483 years, he'll die. And that word cut off is interesting because it literally means he will be executed. And it's a term that's used mostly for the execution of a criminal. How was Christ killed? As a criminal, on a cross, hung between two what? Criminals. See, it's a prediction of, it's a prophecy regarding the coming of Christ, the death of Christ. And the coming of Christ is referring to his triumphal entry when he was declared Messiah, when the people said, the King of David, hallelujah, Hosanna. And then he would die that same time period, the same year. So you have a 483 year period of time, guys, that, have, that have, are laid out here for us by Gabriel, but we're still missing a week. So you've got an anointed one, and then he mentions another prince. He says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, who could that be talking about? Well, there's a near reference to this when we know that Titus came and he destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, but it's also got a future reference to the Antichrist. How do we know that? Because this is going to happen again, guys. We know this from Revelation chapter 11. We're going to see it next week. Then I was given a measuring rod, John says, like a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there because the temple's been rebuilt again during the tribulation. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So again, now we're looking to the future, we're seeing the tribulation, and we're seeing the fulfillment of what Gabriel's just told Daniel. There's an anointed one, not an anointed one, but a prince coming, the Antichrist, and he's going to raise havoc against the people of Israel and against the temple that he authorized to be rebuilt. And he's going to do it for 42 months. How long is that? It's three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation are these three and a half years. 
where the Antichrist shows up and he begins to persecute, attack, and put to death the people of God and to destroy the city of God, including the temple. So here's Gabriel, again, expanding Daniel's thought process and helping him to understand it's much more than just going to the land. And it tells us this same prince, he shall make a strong covenant. Remember we said several weeks ago, one of the first things when the Antichrist shows up in the tribulation is he makes a covenant with Israel between all the other nations and he makes a peace treaty with them and he's a diplomat and it's how he rises to power because he allows them to rebuild the temple on the temple mount where the dome of the rock is and he brings peace, but it only lasts for three and a half years because it says he'll make a strong covenant with many for a week, seven years. And for half of the week, three and a half years, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. So halfway into the tribulation, he changes his mind and reveals his true heart. And he begins to attack the people of Israel. And it says, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. What is that talking about? He will erect an idol, Antichrist, of himself in the temple, desecrating the temple and forcing the worship of him. So we're reading a prophecy that's gonna be fulfilled in the future, but was a mystery to those who even wrote it, like Daniel and Jeremiah. They didn't fully understand it, but guys, the reason we've been given revelation is so that we might. These things are gonna take place. He's gonna put it into sacrifice. Who? The Antichrist in the tribulation. And so what we have here is a reference to the missing week. All of this, remember there's 483 weeks from the time the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem and Nehemiah and his people go back and the coming of the Messiah and the cutting off, off of the Messiah, 483 years. Where's the missing week? Well, he's telling us it's sometime in the future. It's gonna take place during the tribulation. And half of that time is going to be Terrible, horrible, horrific. It's what we're looking at in the seven trumpet judgments. Plagues, famines, things falling out of the sky, water turning to blood, grass being burned up. It's, it's this great tribulation. And this is how you feel right now, right? Why are we studying this? Why is this important, Ken? How do you know? You know, I don't know, guys. Nobody knows for sure, but we study this because God's given it to us. He's told us there's a blessing that comes with us, with it, and he, he shows himself strong in this book. It's the reason we study the book of Revelation. Do we fully understand it? Am I gonna fall on my sword over everything I've just told you? No, but I strongly believe what I'm sharing with you because it makes sense. But more than anything else, it reveals to me the sovereignty of my God, the control of my God. And so this chart that I've given you, and I'm just going to blow through this really quickly, guys, and you can look at it later, but here's the 70 weeks, the 77s, the 490 years that Gabriel's trying to tell Daniel. There's a 490-year period of time. He says 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city. So let's look at the first part of the chart. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem took place in 444 or 445 BC. Now, one of the things you have to take, take into account when we look at this is the Jews used a lunar calendar, 
360 day year. So you can't, you can't do any of these calculations based on our solar calendar. And as I said, men much smarter than I am have done the calculations. But if you start in 444 BC, within seven years, 400, or 49 years, seven weeks, what happens? They finish rebuilding the temple, the walls, the gates, the city. So that decree came true. But there's another 62 weeks until Messiah comes and Messiah's cut off somewhere around 32, 33 AD, depending on the start date. So that's 483 years, all right? We're missing a year. Where's the missing year? Right here. You're in it. Or, or we're not in the, the missing year. We're in the gap between the missing year. So here's, here's a way to understand this. If you ever watch a movie with your DVD or you still use the, your recording device on your TV, you hit play, you start watching it, and suddenly you hit pause and you go make a sandwich for however long that takes you. And then you come back and you hit play again. We're in the pause. See, we tend to want to look at this as 490 consecutive years that all run together. Well, 483 are, but the last years are separated and it's separated by the church age. We're living in the pause. We're living in the gap between these two sections, the church age, because Messiah was cut off. He left. The Holy Spirit came. Church age began. We're living in it. We're somewhere on the timeline. Don't know how long it's going to last, but at the point of time, Christ will come for the church. And when he comes for his church and the church is raptured, the tribulation starts and it's like God hits play again. And the last seven years begin. That's what we've been studying. We are living in the gap. And it's the gap Daniel didn't understand. Jeremiah didn't understand. They didn't fully get the church age. Weren't aware of it. It's not spoken of in the Old Testament because it was all about the Jews in the Old Testament. But it's prophesied there. And Paul and Peter and others help us understand it. And John. So now we see the 70th week. It's the tribulation. It's what we've been talking about for 10 solid weeks. The missing week. And it's got two parts, three and a half years and three and a half years. First three and a half years, are not, not too bad. Peace treaty, Jerusalem's doing okay. Temple's been rebuilt. Sacrificial systems be, been reactivated. Three and a half years in, Antichrist turns on him. Erects an idol of himself in the temple, desecrates it, abominates it. And then we have the great tribulation and that's where everything we've been looking at takes place the seven trumpet judgments, and what's coming up next semester, the seven bowl judgments. So real quickly, chapter 10, if you can still think clearly. This won't take us long, guys, because there's not a lot in this chapter, but chapter 10 says, John sees another angel. Good grief, how many angels are there? Well, there's plenty. And another angel shows up, and it's another of the same kind. This is not Jesus, as some commentators want to make it. Why do we say that? Why do we know that? Because every time John mentions Jesus in this book, he describes him in a different way. He never describes him as an angel. How does he describe him? The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the son of man, the first and the last, the living one, the son of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He never calls him an angel. 
So no matter what you see about this angel and the attributes about this angel, it is not Jesus. It's an angel, another of the same kind. But look, look at this. He's wrapped in a cloud. He's got a rainbow over his head. He's got all these kind of weird attributes. What do they mean? Well, a cloud is a symbol of God's glory. It's what appeared over the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat and the tabernacle. It's what led them over the wilderness. So it's a, it's a sign of his glory, but it's also a sign of his judgment. So this angel has attributes, symbolic attributes of God. We, we know in Matthew 24, Jesus says, when he comes back, he'll appear in heaven with a sign of the son of man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He comes with the clouds. Clouds reveal the glory of God. Well, he's also got this rainbow over his head. A rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy in the midst of judgment. And we get that from where? From Noah. After the flood, God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant, the rainbow, that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. I will never do this again. I will never destroy the world with a flood. So it's a sign of God's mercy. It says his face shone like the sun. It's a symbol of God's Shekinah glory. When Moses went up on the mountain to get the law and he came back down, his face glowed and it scared the bejeebers out of everybody, so he covered it. He glowed because of God's glory, so does this angel. It says his legs were like pillars of, pillars of fire. Fire is always a picture of God's judgment, but also his holiness. So this angel is just simply represented as representing God. And it says he stands on the earth and the sea. Why is that important? Because who made the earth and the sea? God, the creator God. So he represents God. And what he's about to say is pretty important. He says he had a little scroll open in his hand. So we got another scroll and it literally means diminutive, small little book. And he said his right foot in the sea, his left foot in the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So he's got that little scroll, and we'll find out more about that in a second. And when the thunder sounded, I, John, was about to write. So evidently, he understood something in these thunders. There were words. There was some communication from God, and he starts to write them down. But what happens? He's told by God, no, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, that's kind of odd, right? Because what was his original commission? Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. But at this point, God says, don't write it down, seal it up. Just hold on to it. What's going on here? Why can't he write this down? He clearly understood what was said through the seven thunders, but it was gonna be for his ears only. It would remain a mystery. See, God doesn't always reveal everything. And there are aspects of the end that we don't even yet understand. And God has that prerogative. Have you ever asked God to explain something to you and he doesn't? I have. You ever ask God why and he never tells you why? Guess what? He's not obligated to tell you why. There are certain things God knows that we don't know. And this is a case in point. So it goes on and says, I, this angel swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is, it, what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, which is why he's standing on the earth and the sea, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet, the seventh trumpet, things will begin to wrap up. No more delay. Why? Because the end is near. We're right there on the edge. 
And it's the answer to the prayers of the saints beneath the throne who are crying out, how long? When are you going to avenge? It's right around the corner. We're close to the edge. We're right at the end of that seven-year period of time, the missing seven years, and it's compressing, guys. And then an interesting thing's happen. The angel or the voice from heaven says to John, take the scroll from the angel's hand, and I want you to do something with it. So he goes and he gets it, and he takes it. Then he says, eat it. And you got to imagine, he's like, excuse me? Do what? Eat it. Eat the scroll. Eat the book. And I took the little scroll and I ate it. And he says, it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, it was bitter to my stomach. What's going on here? Why is this happening? Why is it sweet and why is it bitter? What's, what's the message there? Well, it's bitter because it contains judgment. We're about to see the seventh trumpet blown. It's going to get worse. And so he eats it and it's bitter to his stomach because it's the judgment of God. Jeremiah says, in those days, these last days, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, your sins get visited upon the next generation, but everyone shall die of his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. It's bitter. The judgment of God is bitter. And when he eats this book, it upsets his stomach because he hates it. And I know over the last 10 weeks, you've read parts of this book going, man, this is sad. This is not fun to read. This is not enjoyable. It makes me sick to my stomach to think about this. But it's also sweet. Why? Because it's fulfilling the promises of God. What did the angel say to Daniel? These things will happen. And that should be sweet to us, guys. Yes, it's horrible and it's horrific. And I hate that this is going to happen to people. But guess what? It's the fulfillment of our God. And it should be sweet to us. Because he promises to do it and he will do it. And it ends really well for us. And it should be sweet. Ezekiel had the same experience. He was given a scroll to eat. And he said, it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Jeremiah was told to eat the words of God. And he says, they were sweet. They were delight to my heart. Why? Because I'm called by his name. See, when we read this book, it shouldn't scare us. It should be sweet to us because it tells us about our God and his sovereign plan. But it ends with this. He says, you missed again prophecy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You may not have been able to write down the seven thunders, but guess what? You still got a job to do. Why? Because it's not yet over. He's still got some things he's got to communicate. And we've got 11 more chapters to go one more trumpet to be blown, and it's going to reveal the seven bowl judgments. Now, guys, if this book has depressed you and you're like, I don't know if I can take 11 more weeks of this. What you got to understand is that this is the will of God, and it's going to have a really, really good ending. But just like Jesus had to die before he was glorified, there is going to be judgment that comes on this earth. But then God will rectify everything. So here's, here's your discussion questions for this morning. What is it about the message that we've been reading that John has been revealing that is both bitter and sweet to you? What about reading this book for the last 10 weeks has been bitter and what has been sweet? Where do you see those two qualities even in your own life as you study it? 
John's told the mystery of God is about to be fulfilled. What does this have to do with those 70 weeks of Daniel? And what if Daniel could have seen this? What if Daniel could have fully understood it, but he didn't? How does the idea of God keeping his covenant promises to Israel strengthen your understanding of his faithfulness? What promises are you counting on him keeping? What if he didn't? What if he said, you know, I know I said, but I'm not. I know I promised, but it ain't gonna happen. What does it tell you about your God that thousands of years earlier he told Daniel, and now we're seeing with John a preview of it being fulfilled. Your God is faithful. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their patience. I pray that you would take this information as vast as it is, as confusing as it is, and you would make it clear over the weeks ahead. And if nothing else, may they dig deeper. May they seek you more. May they trust you further. Father, we just finished a very controversial time of election in this country. And there is animosity. There is anger. There are people who are hurt. There are people who are... um, disenchanted, who are disappointed. There are people who are angry. They put their hope in government. Father, I pray that we as a people of God would put our faith in you, that we could trust you, that you know what you're doing and you have a plan and you're working it to perfection. So bless the time around the tables, Father, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.